Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if you would, please open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19, and remain standing as we read the Word of God. I'm actually going to be look, we're actually going to be looking at chapter 19, all of it, verses 1 through 21, and also the first nine verses of chapter 21. So Deuteronomy 19, verses 1 to 21, and then also Deuteronomy 21, verses 1 to 9. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall prepare roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, that any manslayer may flee there. And this is the case of the manslayer who flees there, that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in the past, as when a man goes to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber, and his hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he shall flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long, and kill him, though he was not deserving of death, since he had not hated the victim in time past. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall separate three cities for yourself. Now if the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he swore to your fathers, and gives you the land which he promised to give to your fathers, and if you keep all these commandments and do them, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to walk always in his ways, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three, lest innocent blood be shed in the, in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and thus guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, rises against him and strikes him mortally so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and bring him from, from there and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, you, but you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with you. And you shall not remove your neighbor's boundary, uh, your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in your inheritance which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days, and the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall, shall, shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity, 
Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for And from Deuteronomy 21. If anyone is found slain, lying in the field in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer, which has not been worked and which has not pulled with a yoke. The elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. By their word, every controversy and every assault should be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. Then they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Uh, provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. And atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood, so you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Father, as we now come to your law and this section of the book of Deuteronomy that specifically deals more minutely with laws that relate to the way in which we are to treat one another as we enter into the second table of the law uh, more formally, having even begun it with the end of Deuteronomy 16. Lord, we do pray that you would make us a just and righteous people, that even as the Lord Jesus Christ has said, that we would treat others the way that we would like to be treated, and also that we would love others even as the Lord Jesus Christ has loved us, that in this way all people would know that we are your disciples, that we would treat one another with kindness, and that we would in this sense obey your law to the praise and glory of your name. For Lord, we do ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So here we have, with the beginning of Deuteronomy 19, Moses' exposition of the Sixth Commandment. We are now dealing with uh, laws regarding the taking of life and what is just and what is unjust. And one important question to ask as we begin this is this, is all taking of life equal? Is all taking of life uh, equal in terms of its guilt that it brings upon a person? Or, to ask it kind of in a reverse way, are there times when it is actually right and good to take life? Now, this is something that there is much confusion about today with regard to justice and the way it relates to violations of the Sixth Commandment. There are some who will say that the death penalty is inherently unjust because it involves the taking of life. And this group will often even say that those who, for instance, defend the rights of the unborn will say that there is, in fact, an inconsistency because, on the one hand, you are willing to put people to death for committing certain crimes, and the other and you're saying that you uh, support the right to life. Is this a contradiction? And what do the scriptures say in terms of the taking of life? 
are there a way, are there senses in which there are times when it is right to take life and when it is wrong to take life? And how are we to judge between these kinds of things? Now, what's important to note even about the different positions that people take today with regard to the taking of life and what is considered just, it's important to note that all sides believe that they are just with regard to the taking of life. No side believes that they are in fact acting contrary to what is right and good. There's, there's not a group that is saying we are taking this particular life and not this particular life for a, an unjust reason. Everyone believes that they are just. But the question is, what does the Bible teach? What does the Bible teach about what is just with regard to the taking of life? Now, there are a number of principles, actually, that Deuteronomy 19, the beginning of 21, uh, teach us about uh, the way in which life is to be taken in a just way. For instance, we'll see uh, from all these passages, we'll see all the way throughout, that intention is something that's important for determining guilt. If there is no intention, then there is actually, uh, in, in some sense, guilt. We'll, we'll get to the, the qualifying case of negligence. But the idea here with the, with the manslayer, as we'll see, uh, is that there must be intention for someone actually to be guilty. We'll also uh, see that there is a need to, to establish truth. If there's going to be any taking of life, there needs to be more than just one witness, as we'll see. What we'll also see, though, is that the death penalty itself it actually upholds the sanctity of life. This is something that the scriptures teach. If you are unwilling to have a society where there is a death penalty, particularly for murder, then this is, in fact, an unjust thing, and it is actually a violation of the principles of the sanctity of life. And another principle that we'll see is that as much as we would like to try, as much as we are even commanded to strive for justice in this world, ultimately, as we see from Deuteronomy chapter 21, ultimately, we will never have perfect justice in this life. We'll never have perfect justice in this life. And so these are just some of the things that we can uh, glean from Moses' exposition of the Sixth Commandment and his application of it to uh, the people of God uh, in Deuteronomy 19 and in the beginning of Deuteronomy 21. Now, what you'll notice here as we continue to move on through the book of Deuteronomy is that we are now getting into the section of Deuteronomy where there are more minute laws that deal with the way in which uh, we are to treat one another. As I mentioned in, in the, the opening prayer, we have already entered the second table of the law. The second table of the law began in the, at the end of Deuteronomy 16, where Moses began to speak about the different authority structures that are within of God within, the, within Israel itself. Uh, and, and yet, there is a sense in which the fifth commandment is almost like a sliding transition, uh, particularly with the way in which Moses applies it, because the fifth commandment and the authority structures in Israel were all built around the need to worship. And so, in some sense, the fifth commandment was related to the first table of the law. Now, remember, first table of the law, how we treat God. Second table of the law, how we treat man. But here... With the beginning of Deuteronomy 19, we are now dealing squarely with the way in which we are to treat one another. And the first commandment that Moses is going to deal with in, in this category is going to be the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not murder. Now, before we get into the specifics of this particular commandment and uh, Moses' exposition of it, the way it's related to the cities of refuge and, and everything else that he says, it, it, it's good for us to consider the way in which these kind of laws apply to us today. And the reason is because there are actually a number of different views of how these are to apply to us. So there are some that will say that 
the civil laws in Israel, so the, the, the laws that deal with how we are to treat one another, that all of them should apply more or less exactly as they're given. That would be the most just system. There are others who will say that the way in which it is to apply is really only the general equity of the law. So the idea being the principle of morality that's set out in the civil law is to be followed and applied in our civil government and then in even more broadly in the family and in the, in the church so and everything else. There's another view that says basically that the civil law is gone. It's not to be used as a basis for, in any really, uh, the, the civil laws that would be judged in our society. So what, what's, the, what's the correct view? Again, it's, a, it's good for us to, to keep this in mind because this will always apply in all the, the chapters up to the end of chapter 26. All of them are going to be dealing with these kinds of issues. One of the problems with the view that takes the laws as being the, the best thing to apply in every situation is that it, and this would be the, the view that basically saying, the civil laws in Israel are to be applied uh, in exactly the form that we have them. One of the problems is that it doesn't take into account Israel's specific situation as a theocracy, that God is the ruler of Israel in a way that he really can't be the ruler of, of any particular country. Uh, God is, of course, the ruler. However, as we saw, for instance, with Deuteronomy 17 and the way in which court cases are to be conducted, if there is a Case, the final court of appeal is actually God in Israel. It's, it's not a, uh, the high priest. It is, it is God himself. And so God is going to make a determination. That really can't happen uh, in, in today's world, in any, in any situation. We, we, we cannot come to God and find a verdict from him, and then there be the same level of in which we just obey ever God says. We, God doesn't provide us with special revelation on those kinds of things. We, there's a, and another, another particular problem with that way of applying uh, the civil law is that some of the civil laws actually, be, and this is again because Israel's a theocracy, actually apply more to the church than to the civil government. And so, for instance, we saw with Deuteronomy 13, the laws regarding the uh, the tests for false prophets and the things that are to be done there, that the, the primary application of, those, of that particular chapter is not so much the civil sphere, but the church. That is, there, that is to say, there's to be excommunication of everyone who turns away God and that's the main sen- That's the main sense in which Deuteronomy 13 ought to apply to us today. And so, in that sense, then, there's, there's something of a difference. However, there is not a complete difference and this is where the other side gets it wrong. It is not to say that there is no relationship between the laws that we find in Deuteronomy and any of, or any other part of the Pentateuch and the civil law. And this is because, as we've seen with the structure of Deuteronomy, all the civil laws are built on the Ten Commandments. They're built on God's moral law that always applies. And so because of that, there has to be something that teaches us what is right and good. If it is the case that God has put the sword in the hands of the civil government to punish those who do evil and to reward those who do good, then the civil government is obligated to reflect God's justice in some way. And if this is the case, then you have to say where in the scripture that teaches us what that justice is, 
The answer would, of course, be the Ten Commandments. This is where God shows us what is just and what is not just. And therefore, all of the laws in Israel do apply in some way to every situation uh, in every government in the world. And there is, in, in, that, in this sense then, an, an obligation for every government to build laws that are consistent with the principles that are found uh, in the Pentateuch. Not to say that it is necessary to implement it exactly as was implemented in, in Israel. It's not even really possible to do that. However, there are principles with regard to what is considered murder, for instance, as we'll see here, that in, in this sense must apply. And a righteous and just society will be a society whose laws actually reflect in some ways, the principles that Moses lays out with regard to the Sixth Commandment. And so we'll see this happen again uh, and again as we move through a, a, a Deuteronomy, particularly from this point, Deuteronomy 19, all the way through Deuteronomy 26. So with that, uh, more into the passage, uh, we're going to just look at this passage under its, its various headings. There are uh, really four main sections, with the, with the second one really being just one verse. And what we're going to see here. In, as we work through the passage, are the, the various principles that I had laid out. Again, that intention is important, that in the execution of justice, there must be more than one witness, so there must be a, a, a thorough way to establish the truth, that the death penalty upholds the sanctity of life, and that perfect justice cannot be achieved in this life. And one way we're going to see that as we work through the passage. And the first thing that we're going to look at is verses 1 through 13, where Moses gives instructions concerning the cities of refuge. Concerning the cities of refuge. Now, there had already been three cities of refuge set aside on the east side of the Jordan. Moses is now giving instruction for setting aside three cities on the west of the Jordan. So they're going to cross over the land of the Jordan, and they must now set aside three more cities of refuge on the, on the west side of the Jordan. Moses has already touched on this topic at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 41 through 43. And this is the fuller description. I mentioned uh, months and months ago when we were going through Deuteronomy 4 that, that there was an, uh, another passage in Deuteronomy uh, where Moses deals with these questions in more detail, and this is where we are. Deuteronomy 19 deals with this in more detail. And so Moses says that there must be three cities of refuge that are put in place to the west side of the Jordan when you cross over. Also, they're in general supposed to be equidistant from one another. They're supposed to be uh, have a, the same kind of separation between so that all equal access to them. There's even to be roads that are constructed, as Moses says, such that uh, everyone has every opportunity to get to these cities of refuge. Even further than this, Moses will say uh, in verses 8 through 10, if God blesses you and you have your borders expand even further, you are to even set apart three more cities. So the idea is that there are to be always more cities of refuge as the people of God grow, as the, the territory and land uh, grows. And even it's this provision was actually said there was never a time when Israel grew to the point that they actually had to set aside uh, these other uh, three cities. And this was, of course, because uh, Moses gives us the condition in verses 8 and 9 that the, that the people of God must be faithful in order to, for this to happen. And the Old Testament is very sadly a history of the people of God uh, not being faithful. So this is what cities are set aside. Now, why are these cities set aside? What's the purpose? What's the, what's the principle with regard to its relationship to the Sixth Commandment? The purpose is that this, these cities are set apart for the sake of preserving life that was taken accidentally. That's the idea. And if that's the case, then 
the thing that Moses is highlighting is, as I mentioned in the beginning, that intention is in regard to culpability with uh, murder. If there was no intention, then there is no guilt. If it, something was, in fact, a complete accident and something happens where there is literally no way of foreseeing that thing happen, then there is no guilt. Now, this is an important concept to think through. Uh, even as we, as we ourselves as Christians train our consciences to uh, be in coordination with the Word of God, to, to, to have them submit to the Word of God, if you do something to someone and it is a complete accident, perhaps this has happened to you in your life and you feel a great weight of guilt, the Scriptures will actually say, you are not guilty for that thing. If it was a complete accident, if there's no intention, something happened where you accidentally did harm to another person, and yet there was no way that you could have foreseen it, uh, the scriptures are, teach you that this is, in fact, something that is not culpable. You are not culpable even uh, before God. Intention is important with regard to establishing, uh, uh, with regard to establishing guilt as it relates to murder. And so there is a protection that said that reason that speaks about this protection uh, is because uh, there was an avenger of blood and it could be the case that they over and you know want to just avenge uh, this this what in his mind what is is an unjust taking of life and so he can he'll find the person on the road and kill him and the city of refuge is to be a place where the the manslayer can and he will in fact be protected it is a protection for the person who tries, who, who, has, who has accidentally taken a life. And even the innocence of the, the one who accidentally commits this act, and even the unjust nature of the avenger of blood is seen in verse 6, as Moses says that this person does not deserve to die. So it is actually then an unjust action for the avenger of blood to take the life of this person. And so the city of refuge, because he doesn't deserve to die, and so, so the city of refuge is a provision that makes allowance for this kind of thing. And so Moses then even will explain then, particularly in verses 4 to 7 as a whole, he'll explain uh, what a, a kind of situation uh, falls under this category of, of, of uh, an accidental manslaughter, um, an a, a innocent manslaughter, so to speak, such that the city of refuge can provide protection. So he says, you know, so let's say someone is in the forest with their friend, and, you know, Axe Head just flies off, no way of knowing that that was going to happen, um, and the, the person ends up dying. Moses says there is no culpability. There's no culpability at all. It was a complete accident. Now, this is different from negligence. This is different from negligence because in the scriptures, in terms of the guilt that we see from the Sixth Commandment, negligence actually does make you culpable with regard to the Sixth Commandment. So this, this is not what Moses is saying. It's not He's not saying that the axe head was barely hanging on, so to speak, and everyone sort of knew it was barely hanging on, and then you swung it, and you, you really should have known. Everyone did know that it was not a safe thing to do. That's not what Moses is talking about. Moses is talking about a completely unforeseeable accidental thing. The reason why we know this is because there are other laws that speak to this very issue. So, for instance, particularly the, the classic one is the goring ox. Uh, if you know that your ox is prone to gore and you do not tie it up, then you are culpable. You are culpable for murder if that if that in fact kills another person because you should have known. You were even warned is the is the idea, and yet you still did not tie up your ox. Negligence negligence is different than what Moses is saying. 
what Moses is saying erases all culpability is something that is, in fact, a complete accident, if it is a complete accident. Now, one of the things that this makes clear then, and again, all these things are things that we should that can be applied to, to uh, legal systems in general, uh, and even we see this in the legal system, it's something we can thank the Lord for, that there is a sense in which intention does determine level of culpability. Uh, the, the kinds of things that, you know, the difference in man different degrees of murder usually relate to uh, different kinds of intention, different kinds of acts that were being you know, uh, perpetrated while uh, this or that thing was done, and there's a, a gradation of guilt based on a level of intention in this, in this way. Uh, and so this is something that, that's good. It is something that should be uh, the case in, in all just societies. There's also the spiritual component, because one of the things that this proves is that uh, intention itself would make someone guilty in and of itself. The state has not been tasked with determining intention without action. If there is an action, an actual, an actual harm that's done to a person, then the state must determine not uh, the person who committed the act that harmed another person, whether or not that person's guilty. The, the state can't uh, legislate with regard to hatred that's never acted on. However, God does. And one of the things that we see here by making intention something that is related to violation of the Sixth Commandment, we basically are close to the principle that Christ expounds in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you hate your brother, you are guilty of murder in your heart. It is the intention that makes the guilt. It, it's it's, it's the, the matter of the heart that is, in fact, making the guilt. And this is even the reason why an accidental manslaughter, where it's, again, a complete accident, why there is no guilt is because you, in your heart there is no hatred. It's, it's the hatred, actually, that brings about the culpability. It's even the way that Moses speaks. The reason why the person is because in times past he never hated his brother. He did not act out of hatred in any way. And if there is no hatred, there is no because sin is ultimately a matter of the heart. And so we see even as Moses is applying these particular principles uh, to the civil government, still the spiritual element is there with regard to the law. That ultimately, even in the Old Testament, violation of the Sixth Commandment is more than anything else a matter of the heart. The law of God is spiritual. Now, notice that in verses 11 through 13 that these provisions do not apply in any sense to, to the person who did hate his neighbor and who did murder his neighbor. So if, if someone were to try to take advantage of the cities of refuge— by fleeing to one of the cities of refuge, murder his brother, then the elders are to turn that person over to the, the avenger of blood, and he is to be put to death. Notice, not only just put to death, but even put to death without any pity. Without any pity. Now, this is an interesting thing to think about, that there are actually times when pity is now think about that. It would be it would have been sinful for someone to pity the murderer here and then not to execute the, the justice. Moses actually commands that there be no pity for the person who does this very thing. Here we see again that there that the, the death penalty is right and good, and it actually upholds the sanctity of life. The way in which you know, the way in which you know uh, that life is valuable is that when it is taken, there is a just and strong penalty that comes as a result of that action. That, that is what shows that, 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 that the value of life is, in fact, being preserved. And that's the point here. 
So in the, in the first instance, with the person who accidentally uh, kills somebody, where there's no intention, there is no And yet, in some ways, the same outward action could occur. And yet, because there is no intention, because there is intention in the second, the, the guilt is actually very vastly different. It's vastly different. If there is an intention to kill somebody, then that person is actually liable to death itself and is to be even put to death without any, without any pity at all. And so the cities of refuge, as, a, as a, an institution in, in the land of Israel, was to, make, to uh, display justice with regard to, to the violation of the Sixth Commandment. And it's to, to show forth these very principles. There is to be some kind of provision. There's always to be provision for accidents taking place. There's to be some protection against revenge when there are accidents that happen. Uh, and yet also, those protections are in no way to benefit those who are actually guilty. That is the, the principle of the Sixth Commandment uh, as Moses so expounds it. So intention is important, and we see as well uh, that the death penalty is in fact a good thing. Now, very interestingly, uh, verse 14 comes sort of right in the middle of this discussion. If you were to read from verse 13 to verse 15, there's a very, it would very logically flow. There is this uh, single verse about moving neighbor's landmarks that Moses has stuck in right in the middle of this discussion almost. And it can be tricky to think about why this was done. Uh, it's very interesting. I think there is enough in Deuteronomy, hopefully you've seen it as we've been going through, to show that Moses is structuring uh, his discussion of these various laws by the Ten Commandments. And so I think by inserting this verse here, there is a sense connected to the idea of to 21 trials with regard to murder and various other things. And I think the purpose of Moses putting this here is this, and we see this actually with the Sermon on the Mount as well, that there is not just an obligation for you to love, uh, to, to, you know, to, to refrain from committing any acts of murder against another person, but you're even commanded to refrain from doing something that will cause your neighbor to be angry with you. And you are to refrain from doing something that may indirectly affect the life of your neighbor. If you uh, if you, in some sense, steal from your neighbor his ability to live, which, which, which is what land was in ancient Israel, it was your ability to live. Uh, if you steal from somebody that, and therefore are in some sense um, preventing someone's ability to you know, have the things that they need uh, in this life, that they may then cause strife that will cause conflict, that itself is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. That's, I think, the principle uh, that... Moses is expounding. We saw something very similar in Matthew chapter 5 with Jesus' exposition of the Sixth Commandment in his, his teaching about the way in which hatred relates to murder. It's not just that you are to refrain from hating. That's, of course, what he, what he says at the beginning. But he also says that if some, someone has something against you, as in you have done something to somebody else, and you have caused them to hate you, you are also to go and be reconciled with another person. So here the idea is, I think, similar. You are not to do something that is going to cause a conflict whereby someone may hate you. You are not, you are not to do it. That. that is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. And so that's what Moses says very briefly in, in verse 14. Verses 15 through 21 deal with uh, trials, justice and trials. And the way this relates, particularly 1 through 13, is this. There, there are two different kinds of examples that Moses is given in, in verses 1 to 13. There is someone who uh, accidentally 
somebody, and there is somebody who intentionally money. Now, the, the next logical question to, to ask or to answer is, how do we know which is which? How do we know which person is, has accidentally killed somebody or which person has done it on purpose? And this is, of course, a, a problem. You know, somebody uh, comes and flees to a city of refuge, and if he's guilty of murder, then he is to be turned over to the avenger of blood and put to death. If, however, he's not guilty of murder, then he is to be given protection by the elders of the city. He's allowed to stay there, and they are to protect him. They're never to hand him over to the avenger of blood. So they're to provide him for protection. The question is, how do you know? That is, of course, answered in verses 15 through 21, where Moses establishes various principles with regard to as it relates to finding truth in a trial. Justice as it relates to finding truth in a trial. And there's really two principles here that Moses, that Moses addresses, and that is that there must be more than one witness to establish of anything. We've seen that with 17 as well. And also, false witnesses must be punished. False witnesses must be punished. And so just to, to look at these two uh, principles very briefly, we see in verse 15 that Moses commands that there is to be more than one witness. Again, we've, we've looked at this with, with chapter 17. The reason why I was dealt with in chapter 17, if you remember, is because Moses was dealing with judges and judges, that discussion of actually going to lead to uh, questions with regard to how they are to receive witnesses and that sort of thing. And the principle, though, the principle is that there must be more than one witness because there may be false witness. The reason there may be false witness is because people are sinful. People are sinful. So notice, even in Israel, the land that was supposed to be the land of righteousness, the people of God, the legislation still takes into account the reality that man will always be sinful. And this is something that's fundamental and must true, again, of any just society, there must be more than one witness because people will abuse the system. People will abuse the system because they are sinners. Any government that tries to build its laws around the fundamental principle, the idea that man is righteous, is doomed to fail, is doomed to fail because man is not righteous and people do, in fact, sin. And so any, any government that is going to establish laws with regard to trials, witnesses, murder, any of those things must take into account that man is in fact sinful. And that's the reason why there must be more than one witness. Uh, and it also establishes the idea that truth, truth is with regard to any kind of justice. Justice must be consistent with truth. Any kind of system of justice that's not built on truth is in fact not justice. It is unjust. Now, the other thing that we see with regard to false witnesses is notice the, 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 the emphasis in this passage actually falls on what happens to false witnesses when they accuse someone falsely. And notice Moses says, in that accuses someone falsely, whatever he accuses another of doing, that is in fact to be done to him. We, we've actually seen uh, various points. We saw this mount, various points throughout the Pentateuch. Moses speaks about this principle of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And there are various situations when Moses applies that. Uh, for instance, the very first time is in the context of two people and uh, someone hitting a pregnant woman. And uh, the, the, the rights of the unborn child, so to speak, are such that whatever happens to that unborn child is to happen to the person who hits the, who hits the, the woman. So there is a, a, there is a sense in which it applies in that way. But notice Moses applies the same principle here to trials into unjust accusations, to false accusations. If you accuse someone of doing something, 
that is wrong and it is false and you know it's false, then when that is discovered, that same thing is in fact to happen to you. Now this brings in, brothers and sisters, the, the great importance, as I mentioned, of truth, uh, injustice, but truth in general, that in, in some sense, in some sense, it's equally as severe as murder. If you were to, if you were to accuse someone falsely of murder, you are culpable for murder, even though you didn't actually kill anybody. Because of this very principle, there, there is a demand, there is a demand for truth. Whatever you do to somebody, that must be done to you. The, the, the uh, technical term for this is lex talionis. But not only what you do to another person, but also what you falsely accuse somebody of doing. That, whatever you accuse them of doing, that also is to be done to you in a just society. This is the, the principle of truth that Moses establishes. And so, as he, we're going through then the sixth man, uh, we've established then where there is guilt and how to determine the guilt. The next thing that Moses does, now, next thing, chapter 20 deals with uh, laws concerning warfare. So the taking of life in warfare, what's, what's just, what's unjust in those particular situations, various laws uh, concerning that sort of thing. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, uh, is something of a continuation of the topic that's dealt with at the end of chapter 19, where there is where there are trials. So the question that's being answered in verses 1 to 9 of chapter 21 is this: What happens if we? What happens if we don't know who uh, committed this act of violence? We don't know if it was just or unjust. We simply find someone who's dead, and there is this problem because there must be justice and yet we have no way to actually accomplish it. Now, notice here, too, that even in Israel, where there is a theocracy, where there is a sense in which uh, there are, in some cases, there's an expectation that God will reveal his will with regard to who is guilty and who's not guilty in some circumstances, that Moses is thinking that that's not an absolute thing, that there actually will be some cases where uh, God will, in some sense, mystery, and there will be no ability for the people of God to perfectly execute justice in this life. And the question then is, what do you do? What do you do when uh, there is something unjust that happens and there is a taking of life, and yet there is no way, in fact, to resolve it? And basically, the answer that Moses gives, you are to entrust yourself to God. You are to entrust yourself to God. Now, this takes a particularly Old Testament form uh, where Moses says, you know, the elders of the city are to come along with the they are to animal. This is probably something different than a, than a formal sacrifice that, that had to be done uh, in the central sanctuary. But here the idea is that the, the killing of the animal is still in some way to cleanse uh, the land from uh, the, 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 the blood guilt that's associated with, with the shedding of blood. If you remember, even uh, Moses has said in other places that the reason why the people of God are able to come into the land, why he's going to give land, is because of all the, the blood guilt, uh, that's in the land. Uh, the, the, the idea is that uh, the, the shedding of innocent blood defiles the land. And if you defile the land, then the land will kick you out, so to speak. That's the, the way in which uh, Moses speaks. And so the land was kicking the out. God was going to discipline them because of the way in which they uh, had acted, their, their unjust uh, acts. And so here, though, uh, Moses is speaking about what to do when uh, you know, we can't figure out what happened. And yet we do not want there to be this, this blood guilt with regard to this land. And so this, this slaughtering 
uh, of this animal is in some ways to make atonement for that particular situation. Now, this is an overview of, of Moses' of the Sixth Amendment in general terms as it relates to the city of refuge, trials, and what to do when you can't come to a verdict in the trial, or there, there's really even uh, no way of knowing even who may have been guilty to even acquit somebody. Uh, in light of this, what are you to do? What are the general principles that you are to apply? Well, as I mentioned, this applies to the civil government, but it applies even more broadly to every area of life. And so first, if you were to apply this to, to families, particularly to fathers, remember that intention is important the guilt of your children. That if they do something accidental, and it's really a complete accident, they're not really uh, there could be negligence, and that needs to be dealt with. Uh, children are often negligent. Uh, but nevertheless, there needs to be something uh, for somebody, uh, a child in a family who does something accidentally. And it's really the father's duty to uphold this, this, this idea of justice. That if, if someone, by complete accident, does something, and children are they're negligent, but they also do things with that accidentally all the time, that, that uh, doing things accidentally is, in fact, uh, not a violation uh, of, uh, of the Sixth Commandment or any of the other commandments. Also, that there is, you need to remember that there is, that you must be diligent in establishing the truth. That you need to be able to know whether or not you did something right or wrong before you issue a particular punishment. Uh, and this needs to be established in ways that can, where you can reasonably say, I know any kind of implementation of justice that's not based on truth is actually a perversion uh, of justice. And you are to re remember uh, as well that just as in Deuteronomy 21, so too in the family, you will not always be able to implement justice perfectly in the family. It's never going to be possible. Now, it's probably, um, in some ways, it may be even fairly common in the family, but we are to strive to do the best we can and we're to leave the rest to the Lord. That is the ways in which we can apply all these principles to the family. Second, if we look at the, the way in which this applies to civil government, all these principles are to apply such that this, these kinds of principles ought to inform the way you vote. Whatever, whatever in publicly, uh, you are to apply the principles of God and it according to the Bible to the civil sphere. And so if, you, if it's simply voting, then you vote according to the principles of the scriptures. Uh, or if you have more authority, if you are involved in the government in some other way, you are to make use of that power such that uh, you are carrying out the mandate for the government as it's given in Romans 13, to, uh, to, uh, to punish the guilty and to reward the righteous. Third, all these things are to be maintained. All these principles are to be maintained in the church as well. That there is to be provision for people who do things accidentally, protect made things. There is to be a, a rigorous attempt to establish the truth, and there is to be a giving over of things to God when all of these things are impossible. The idea is, is that we as Christians must implement justice in life as it reflects God's justice as it's been revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be just and righteous people, and our obedience to the sixth commandment is to apply this broadly to all areas and aspects of society, all areas uh, and aspects of life itself. But one, one last word with regard to the way in which this relates, particularly to the lack of our ability to implement perfect justice in this world. 
one of the things that this leads us to do is to expect and, and wait with great anticipation the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because one of the things that is said of the Lord Jesus Christ is that when he comes as the king, he establishes justice on the earth. That he, does, he, that he will judge the world with perfect righteousness. If you think of even the first servant song, as they call it, in, in Isaiah 42, this is, this is what, what's promised, that he will bring forth justice to the nations, the prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it may be, brothers and sisters, that you experience some kind of suffering, hurt that comes from another person, Maybe that you know someone else, and perhaps there's a great perversion of justice. Perhaps there is no way to get justice for some, for some reason. There's no way to find out what happened or whatever else. All of these things are to drive you back to the hope that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he Now notice, I think, this is, I think this is even the reason why God does not, did not give any provision in Deuteronomy chapter 21 not to tonight for this kinds of murders um, that in some sense there there is no recourse that the Israelites had for the establishment of justice in this way and the reason for that is because it is always to be dependent upon the coming of the Messiah that the the children of, of Israel were to learn that there really can be no no perfect justice until the coming of Christ and when Christ comes, all justice is dependent upon him ultimately, and he is the one who will judge, as it says in Romans chapter 2, even the secrets of men according to the will of God. He will judge even the secrets of men. And so this is something that is something that we are to look forward to in the ways in which even the passage of this points forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ is the perfect example of justice, and we, as those who have been justified in him by faith, we are the ones who look forward with great anticipation to the day when we will be perfectly vindicated in the sight of all and every wrong done will be perfectly repaid and God will establish perfect justice in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these, all of these things, all of these things point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ in this way. And all of this that, that we see with regard to Moses' exposition of the Sixth Commandment shows the sanctity of life, not all taking of life. Sometimes there needs to be a taking of life to uphold the sanctity of life, and many times the taking of life is, in fact, a violation of the Sixth Commandment. In every situation, we must look to establish the truth and be those who reflect the justice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even, even brothers and sisters, as we think about this, that truth and justice are established perfectly when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, so too... We are told in the New Testament that we ourselves will reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, then it must be us. It must be us who establish justice in the world. As those who are committed to reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring forth justice to the nations as, as the king, so too we are to be a reflection and uh, a, uh, a positive force for the forwarding of justice in this world. May it be that God would grant us the grace as a church, as individuals, as people, as families, to maintain truth and justice as we await the, as we await the perfection of it when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Let's pray.
Father, how we do pray that you would make us just in this way, that you would help us to maintain justice in every area of life. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart, that through the preached word your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.